Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio, Greenwashed with Don and Jaspreet. Remember to give us your feedback on 2057 via text or via email at inbox at realitycheck.radio. Today we have a great guest on our show, former Senator Craig Kelly, member of the Federal Liberal Party in Australia, um, a former member for Hughes in Sydney, uh, member from 2010 to 2022. So that's four terms, Craig. Um, You've been in my uh, sites for some time. I've watched you on Sky News Outsiders. I've watched many of your uh, YouTube clips and the like. can you give us some more of your background? I know your parliamentary career. I, I've got it all online, but how did you start out in, in life and where did you come from? Sure, great, great. Firstly, great to be with you, Don, and uh, good day to all my good friends over there in New Zealand. It's been a, a number of years since I've uh, since I've been over there. Um, look, I, I grew up in a, what I think, a middle-class family in the suburbs of Sydney. Uh, we grew up, we had a uh, like a rubbish tip across the road. You know, our, our weekends as kids, we'd often go and, rummage through the tip and explore the tip and uh, drag drag treasures home from the dump back to our mum. I don't know whether she thought they were very much treasures. Um, you know, I went to the local um, public uh, primary school, the, the local high school, which at the time was uh, Peakhurst High. Uh, then I went and did a year of university. I was doing an economics uh, and law degree and got through the first year. And I actually, during that first year, I got my golf handicap down to as low as it had possibly ever been because you had so much spare time on your hands. And then during the break of, of university, I started to uh, work uh, with my father. Uh, he had a business at the time. And funny enough, it was just at the time that the, I think it was 1982 or 83 it would have been, when Australia and New Zealand opened up that uh, free trade agreement. And a lot of products, New Zealand used to have very high tariffs uh, on all sorts of goods. And all of a sudden, Australian tariffs went in at zero. So this gave Australian manufacturers a really great advantage, even better than I off our home market, because we weren't competing so much with manufacturers out of Europe and the US, which had that very high tariff barrier. So I sort of spent those holidays. I went to a trip to, to New Zealand. There was a, an exhibition on, um, I think it was in Auckland at the time. And what I learned during that period of um, a break during university was actually more than what I'd learned in the 12 months of going to university. So I went back and I thought, oh, look, I'll, um, there's just too many opportunities in business. This, uh, I think they called CER with New Zealand, was, was such a great uh, opportunity for Australian businesses. Um, you know, I've, I've got to jump into this uh, and I'll do the rest of my studies part-time. Well, I lasted one day. I realised that it was impossible to, you know, to try and work and work in, in the way that I was until university, you know, finishing university degree. So I thought that I'll put that aside and... Um, I'll do my university studies down the track sometime. And look, in reality, I think that was one of the best things that ever happened to me because I think at university, I see so many people come out of university and they're they're basically brainwashed by Marxist ideology and Marxist lecturers. Because I always had the great benefit of doing a little bit of university study, doing a lot on the outside. And it also gave me the passion to continue reading and learning on all the things that I sort of never finished in university. Uh, all the different areas of uh, commercial law, uh, trade practices law, which I had a great interest in, uh, international trade, uh, the how the, econ- the different areas of the economy. Um, so I, I basically felt that you continue to learn 
every single day and every day, you know, you hope to learn something a bit more. It's where people I see at university, they get out and they think they know everything, right? The best thing you know is, you know, there's still so much more that you don't know than uh, uh, that, that you do know. So it was a great um, background. I also played a uh, – I also loved my sport as, as an Aussie. Uh, mm. I loved my cricket. Uh, I loved my rugby. I played rugby here uh, in Sydney. I played for the club, which was St George. Um, you know, we played against – we used to play against all the guys from around. We were in that first grade competition. You know, the I went through the same year as, year as the, uh, the Ellers, uh, uh, Campeses, uh, when we actually could sometimes boot you guys over there, which was very rare over the the past uh, the past forty years, sort of thing. But um, and they were great, they were great, great times, sort of thing. I so I started in the front row as a as a junior, and because I was well, I was too uh, too slow to be a back, and uh, couldn't tackle well enough to be a loose forward, so they stuck me in the front row, and and that's where I stayed, sort of thing. For I ended up playing first grade and finishing a, a, over hundred first grade games for. Uh, both St George and then uh, Southern Districts in first grade here, in wow. um, in 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 first grade competition in Sydney, and uh, you know rugby still one of my great uh, great passions. And uh, one day, one day, we'll get a team good enough to beat you guys over there. <laughs> well, and and listeners, I need to say that I'm aware that Craig has um, uh, been hobbling around in recent weeks because uh, he's had his knee um, kneecaps re- or knee joints replaced and. Uh, yeah, maybe that was uh, just too much rough and tumble when you're a bit younger, Craig. I think it's uh, maybe one too many scrums that I've uh, packed into, uh, one too many balls that I've kicked over my over the years. Um, uh, you know, I think the cartilages just gave out, and uh, you know, just thankfully we have some. Uh, and when you think about it, you know, brilliant surgeons. The you know the surgeon that I had, uh, a guy called Dr. Darren Chen here, um, couldn't. You know, he's with one of those. You know, sometimes you meet people in, in in life. You think, "Wow, he's a competent guy. I'm going to put my trust in this guy," and and that's what I did. And um, he sort of basically cut my knees open, uh, both of them, uh, pulled out the old de- decayed and decrepit cartilage, and put some metal bits and some plastic bits in there. And I tell you what, six weeks on, uh, I'm actually able to walk uh, better and further than I could before the operation. So I've sort of long. A recovery to go, and it's it's a, an awkward operation. It's a, it is a bit of pain you go through, and uh, on the sort of some pretty heavy painkillers that make you get a bit, uh, uh, you know, at times drowsy, and uh, you know, at times you slows you right down. But um, look, I'm at this stage, I'm glad I had it done, and um, it's definitely going to give me a new lease of life. You know, when I when I get back, you know, beyond better than what I was for the last couple of years. Build back better, they say. Build back better. <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. No, 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 no. <laughs> we won't use that one. We'll pass, we'll pass on that. We'll pass on that one. Well, that's interesting. I think um, the United Australia Party, I think you're the executive director of it, so you'll probably need to um, be fit as a trout to continue that push in, in the next uh, next few years and all power to your arm. Um, Craig, I, uh, as I said, I've watched you on uh, Outsiders and other, other venues, um, but... I've also just read your uh, maiden speech in the in the Parliament in 2010 today, and I have to say, uh, I couldn't say it better. That's one, but it's all the stuff that I've been thinking about my entire political life, and it is around competition laws uh, and how how they're failing us, how they're failing us at every damn corner. Uh, the antitrust laws. Not that I know. I can't speak eloquently about it. I'm a farmer from southern New Zealand, but I see exactly what you're seeing 
and and talked about in your hand side and your maiden speech and you were the hundred what were you the thousandth and seventy-seventh member uh one thousand and seventy-seventh member of parliament. Uh so why is it we can't get the messages that you and I and others, and there's quite a few like us, by the way, mm. want to get across the line? And clearly, when you uh, are on the likes of Outsiders or on Ellen Jones, uh, this message is is well received. Mm. What's the hindrance? And firstly, just go back to that, uh, what they call antitrust laws or competition laws, as we probably know them here uh, in Australia and New Zealand. I I developed a great passion and interest uh, in this area. And when you read through the history uh, of these, often we talk about, you know, the free market, free market, free market. And, yes, we believe in free markets, but free markets still need sort of some type of boundaries and and, and guidelines to uh, 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 to work upon. And so you'd otherwise you sort of deteriorate into sort of a form of uh, a sort of serfdom, uh, you know, what they call the road to the road to serfdom, as, as Hayek wrote. And if you look back through what really made America great, was it back in the uh, early, or sorry, the late 1800s, that they realised that they had to make sure that the small business person was given a quality of opportunity to compete. It wasn't a quality of outcomes. It was a quality of opportunity. That was, that was the basis and the fundamental basis of the American economy. And that's why they had an entrepreneurial, that's why the economy was so entrepreneurial and why they came up with so many uh, inventions and improvements to society in all areas of life. And that continued through into the uh, the 1910s. Uh, you had um, uh, was it Teddy Roosevelt, the great president, that actually broke up the Standard Oil Company. Now, the Standard Oil Company, this is one of the things, the Standard Oil Company uh, was, was broken up. It was a monopoly company. It was abusing its monopoly position. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt used antitrust law, or as you say, competition law, to break that company up into 34 separate companies that were all in competition with each other. And this is what's often said, oh, yeah, you're taking away when you take away people's property rights. Well, that's not true because the shareholders in the old Standard Oil Company that had for every one share they had in Standard Oil, they had one share in 34 different companies that were competing against each other. And it quickly turned out that the sum of the parts so each one of those 34 shares was worth more than what the Standard Oil Company was worth by itself. And when you had 34 companies in competition with each other, that uh, set off a great uh, revolution, an entrepreneurial uh, a drive and new inventions and new things. And, and that was basically the, you know, the policy uh, uh, of the US for many, many years. And, and then there was like a, a, a turnaround in the late 70s where I thought, no, no, look, we're... But better, maybe the economy's better to have all these big companies uh, running it because, you know, you get all these econo- giant economies of scale if you have all these. And America sort of like abandoned a lot of their beliefs in antitrust and they went the other way as where you have these uh, giant um, companies. And, and the threat is that they not only uh, crush the competition, but they can actually, because they become so big, they can actually thwart democracy and they can basically keep people out of markets. Uh, we've seen this here uh, in Australia, uh, in our supermarket sector, uh, where we had uh, the two big supermarket giants, Woolworths and Coles, and that's one of the first things that got me interested in politics. Because I could see how, uh, you know, they were running this, oh, we're put, our, our giant strength 
is putting price pressure on prices down. And that was the line everyone was running. Well, I remember saying, that doesn't sound right to me. So I'm mean, looking through all the, um, the food inflation figures internationally. And at that stage, Australia, when they were telling us we were getting lower and lower prices, the truth was we had the highest food inflation in the developed world. The supermarket prices were rising faster in Australia than anywhere else in the world while they were telling us this Woolworths and Coles would be this great, um, you know, how, how wonderful they were. I actually did a, um experiment with a, a current affair. I said, I bet that I can fly to New Zealand and I can buy my same groceries. I think it was uh, the Countdown Group, which is the same as Warsaw. I bet I can buy, because New Zealand at that stage, I think this was the, um, this would have been the mid-1990s, uh, uh, maybe early 2000s. I said, so what I did, I, I went to New Zealand. We flew over to New Zealand with the current affair guys. We picked a shopping centre at random in the south of uh, Auckland. We went through and did a, uh, a shopping and we bought, We tried to buy only brands that I could buy the equivalent thing in Australia. So we weren't picking New Zealand products. A lot of it was Australian product, like you know, we bought the old the Vegemite and, and the wheat bix and the you know the the loaf of bread and the you know the the tin of pineapples that you could buy, not equivalent, but you could buy actually item for item, exactly the same item. And the bill in New Zealand came to something like uh, the equivalent of 187 Australian dollars. Right? We showed me packing up. Went back and bought exactly the same things from Australia at my local supermarket. It was two hundred eighty-seven dollars, so I could say it was a hundred bucks, a hundred bucks savings. So I made the case that I could fly at that stage. I think you'd get across the Tasman for a hundred bucks. I could actually fly from Auckland back to Sydney with my groceries, weekly grocery shopping, and save the hundred bucks to pay for the airfare because of the issues of competition. And that's where we see today, where we see, you know, I think, a lot of the problems we've had during this COVID era is because we've got these giant pharmaceutical companies that have so much control over politics and politicians that they've been able to put political pressure on, on the politicians. They've been able to buy out the media where the media haven't been able to you know, basically tell us what the truth is. And that's why I think we've, we've made so many catastrophic mistakes that have cost so many lives and have cost, you know, billions and billions of dollars simply because we've had an over-concentration in the market, in the pharmaceutical market. We've had too many big companies with too much market power, not only in the market power, but their ability to influence politics and the media. Well, and I think, Craig, today, if we probably do the same, New Zealand would have got the crown of the highest food inflation. We are in a pretty, pretty bad state right now. But <laughs> I I listened to you speaking about equality of opportunities. That almost seems to be a word of the bygone era. All I hear today is equity, equity. So not equality of opportunities anymore. It seems we want to legislate equity of outcomes. And how I've often asked this question, how do you do that? My brother and I, two kids, same household same set of parents, completely different places in life. And yet yeah. out here, the debate seems to be constantly that somehow. And we are on this road to, you know, it's it's a zero-sum game. Where, where does it stop? Is well, it the well, same out there? It is, yeah. Look, you can, you can go down this equity track. But remember, every time you do it, you destroy the incentives for wealth creation. 
Mm. Why, why, would, why would someone take uh, risks about building uh, a new business or developing a new product or a new way of uh, you know, doing things? Why would you take, uh, take those risks, those commercial risks, knowing that you could lose your own capital? Um, why would you take those risks if you can just sit back and no matter how much you achieve, uh, you'll get the, the eventual outcome with equity? You destroy that. You destroy the. Um, now you destroy the, the the desire for wealth creation. I think one of the things I see is a member of parliament and talking to so many kids, and I think the biggest mistake, um, the biggest mistake of the thinking that we see so many young people, they, they think the wealth that we have today is fixed. Mm. So it's just a matter of this is how big the pie is. This is the wealth we have. And it's just a matter of dividing it up. But if, yeah. if you try and divide it up, you know, in this equity way, what you actually do is you shrink the size of the overall pie so everyone gets, yes, you might get an equal slice, but the pie's smaller and you end up with a smaller piece at all. So we've, we've got to make sure there's plenty of um, uh, encouragement in whatever in our economic system to get out there to people to take risks, experiment with new ideas, because a lot of those ideas are going to fail along the way. And if people are successful, and we cannot uh, envy success because the minute that we do them, we get on this equity, equity track, we are going to as destroy the incentive to create wealth and we're all going to go backwards. We are. And, you know, listening to you talk, it's almost like being in an echo chamber because New Zealand and Australia, we went through some of the hardest lockdowns the last three years We've all hermit kingdoms, both both sides of the Tasman. And has this is there now a sense of normalcy back in Australia? How how are things now? Look, there there is, but but you are right. One of the things that is um you know, a lot of my belief systems have been greatly rocked over the mm. past three years. And, and one of my belief systems was that the um the Westminster style of government that countries like New Zealand, Australia and Canada had inherited from Britain sort of gave us this protection and freedom of speech and, uh, uh, you know, um, protection from despotic governments. And, and, and my whole world's been turned upside down because I can see that the most authoritarian countries during the last, outside of communist China, the most authoritarian countries were probably New Zealand, Canada and Australia. The three, the very three countries that you would have, that I was always, you know, sort of thought through that our Westminster systems of democratic government would have protected us from from what's happened. And now, we, like, when we look back, uh, uh, you know, look back through it, the madness. It, it was a period of mass psychosis, where almost every decision that government made and our health bureaucrats made, they got it wrong. We now know, you just go, go down the list. We were, we were told the, uh, the virus came from nature and anyone that said, look, it may have been a lab leak or came from a lab uh, was, you know, that was a conspiracy theory and you were, you were banned from social media. We now know that it's more than likely that the virus did come uh, from a lab. Uh, they told us that these lockdowns would save lives. We now know that the, the lockdowns didn't save lives. We are told us that masks stopped the spread of infection. Well, now all the studies show the exact opposite. We told you know, one drug worked that didn't work and a drug did work. We're, we're told the vaccines were safe and effective. 
We now know that was complete uh, misinformation. So, look, things are, there are still here in Australia, um, there's still many companies that have uh, vaccine mandates, which is just pure uh, insanity because uh, the data is now absolutely crystal clear. Uh, the vaccine not only doesn't stop you from uh, being infected or spreading it, but in fact, the more times that you have been injected, the more likely you are to be infected. That data is, is irrefutable. Uh, there's a very large study out of uh, the US called the Cleveland, Cleveland Clinics, about 50,000 people in that study that shows like sort of like from zero to one dose to two dose to three doses to four doses, the more doses you have, the greater risk of having COVID you are. Uh, we had data here, which you have used to have a weekly data in the New, South, called the New South Wales Health Surveillance Reports. And every week they would report the number of people uh, in hospital and in ICU uh, based upon their vaccination states. And now the last report they put out, there was something like it was something like 800 and something people that had four doses or more that were in hospital and the unvaccinated was a zero ducky. And, and the data was so embarrassing that New South Wales Health have since hidden the data, uh, taken it away, and they no longer report to hospitalisations and ICU by vaccination status because it was just so, it was just so um, you know, the data was so uh, detrimental to um, you know, the, the narrative that they've been trying to run. I mean, so, we as a country, uh, sorry, Don, we shut down for one case. One case. I, I mean, we, 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 no one can take that crown away from New Zealand. We were shut down for look, one case. <laughs> Well, what you had, I think, is the same on both sides of the Tasman, that it was 100% focus on COVID without a single thought about what the unintended consequences could be of the policy decisions that you were making. So, okay, if you were worried about COVID, yes, shut down, shut down, shut down. But you had to think about what were the consequences of those policy decisions. Now, we know that there was a... Uh, people here in Australia committed suicide uh, because of those lockdowns. Uh, we know that there was enormous, well, we're still looking at the excess death, our excess death data is through the roof. Um, we don't know why. I think last, last in two, 2022, Australia had something like 25,000 excess deaths, more deaths than we would have expected. And no one knows exactly why, but one of the theories is, is because of the lockdowns, because people were missing uh, medical appointments. That's one of the theories, whether that's that's right or not. Um, the disruption to children's education that was done. None of those things were ever considered. It was all just 100% on COVID with no idea, no um, no thought whatsoever about, you know, like a risk-benefit analysis uh, about what they were doing. And that's proceeded, and we can now see you know, the harm that these lockdowns uh, in did. Uh, and one of the great issues that we have to tackle, we've got to make sure there's admission that these policies were wrong, because otherwise we're going to there will be another sometime down the sometime I don't know who knows it could be next week it could be in ten years time or twenty years time there will be another outbreak of the virus, and we've got to learn all the mistakes. We've got to be open and honest about all the mistakes that were made during the last two and a half years, so we're not going to repeat them in the next time something like this happens. So New Zealand has 120 MPs in the House at the moment. Not one would admit a damn thing. Um, there was a, the centre-right politician on uh, a show that we, on this 
uh, station uh, last week, and he was in denial that there was excess deaths over the over the, in recent years over historic um, death rates. Um, what's it? Are you finding any senators today willing to break ranks? Any uh, in the federal parliaments willing to break ranks and say uh, we got it wrong and admit they got it wrong? Because I think that's a big deal. If someone says they got it wrong, I think they need to be given uh, commended for saying it, being brave enough to say it. Look, I was, I was in the previous uh, parliament, so uh, I was screaming my screaming my uh, uh, voice out in the previous parliament uh, uh, about all these issues. Um, it got to the stage where I had to, had to resign. I was a member of the government, a member of the Liberal Party. I had to resign uh, as being, you know, I was basically told, you've got to shut up. Mm. Uh, we want you to shut up. Otherwise, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll fix you sort of thing. You'll be, you'll be you, you know, so I said, look, uh, I said, I'm sorry, guys. I, uh, I can't shut up. The reason, you know, I, I'd had the great um, privilege to, to speak to many leading doctors and immunologists uh, uh, you know, not only here in Australia, but from around the world. And what they were telling me privately, as opposed to what sort of the things they were saying publicly was like, you know, um, uh, what they were saying to me privately was enormously disturbing. And knowing those facts that they told me and, and watching the data, I, I just I had no alternative uh, to speak up. And so I was, like, I was vilified <laughs> throughout the media. Um, the Australian media, I was, you know, just continually called as a, a crazed uh, anti-vaxxer. Uh, my Facebook account uh, was the leading political Facebook account in the country. I was getting a million, not views, a million interactions a month on my Facebook page. So that was a million comments, views and likes, a million a month. It was more than both the Prime Minister and the opposition leader combined. And they were paying they were paying money to try and you know, get, their, get their Facebook page up. I wasn't paying a cent. And Facebook just shut me down, pulled it out, took all, took, closed, it, closed it all down, um, wasn't able to access uh, anything on Facebook. You remember the same time? At that time, Twitter, you couldn't post anything on Twitter. Mm. Twitter had the same policies. So, um, so you know, even uh, Facebook even and YouTube as well, they were, uh, they, were, they were censoring the proceedings of the Australian Parliament. So there were times when I would introduce legislation on the floor of the Australian Parliament, debate points in Parliament that are in the parliamentary hansard, and I'd put that on YouTube or Facebook without any other commentary, just the straight parliamentary hansard. Now, you miss the, you know, where it goes, the, the speaker says, you know, I'll give the call to a member for Hughes, da-da-da, that's it. No no introduction, no comments. So Facebook and YouTube were censoring it. They were censoring the proceedings of the Australian National Parliament. This is how... Um, free speech collapsed in this country. Now, at that time, there was you know one or two other. Uh, there was another member in the, the New South Wales, sorry, in the um, in the Parliament uh, Federal Park called George Christensen. He was the only person out of the 151 MPs that would, would, was supporting me. Uh, in the Senate, uh, there were a few guys that were sort of slowly finding their voice. Now, now, thankfully, in the in you know, in the new Parliament, in the House of Reps, just a, a lost cause. There's Maybe a, a guy called Russell Broadbent uh, from Victoria that's been speaking a, a little, a few on these issues, especially on the human rights issue. Um, and in the Senate, we've got a few very good guys, uh, a guy called Senator Jared Rennick, uh, mm. Senator Alex Antic, uh, Senator Malcolm Roberts, uh, and also Sen Senator uh, Babette. 
uh, who's from the uh, United Australia Party. Uh, they are the they are the there's four or five of them. They are the ones that have, are basically the only ones that are speaking up and making sense at the moment. And the uh, and the greatest tragedy to me was that I was a member of the you know the Liberal Party, which we were the you know, the Conservative Party in Australia, and we had our plat- our platform was all about individual rights and individual freedoms and and uh, and and the party. This is why I, I one of the reasons I left. The party basically abandoned every single one of its fundamental values, just trashed them. And I, I would stand up in the party room in Canberra and say, "Okay, guys, you know, I'd read out, um, you know, it's what we believe in. It's a statement that it's what we believe in. It's the, you know, the, the fundamental rights of the, the 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 person to make their own decision to be free of of, of low, less government interference in their lives." And here we were, are trashing things like the doctor. Uh, the doctor-patient relationship, uh, you know, violating that sanctity of the doctor-patient relationship, and telling people that they undergo a medical intervention with threat of loss of jobs. Now that was that was fundamentally uh, against everything that the party believed for, and yet ninety-nine and a half percent of the elected members of the parliament, say ninety-nine percent of the members of the parliament, just sat back, hid under their desk, said nothing because they thought they'd be criticised in the media. Yeah. And I've, I've seen so many debates. Listeners, we are speaking to Craig Kelly, Australian politician. Craig, uh, another thing that Australia and New Zealand have in common, aside from us being hermit kingdoms during the COVID madness, is that we've both jumped on the green gravy train. Green energy, environment, renewables, <laughs> EVs, you name it, both sides of the Tasman, we are all aboard. And we've had a budget here. And, you know, you spoke about free markets and free enterprise. We are talking Mm. of uh, EV charges being subsidized, massive funding for initiatives in which, in many of which cases, if they were working well, there shouldn't have been any market failure. But Mm. we are subsidizing them at a time when our debt levels are extremely high. And they have the goal to call it a bread and butter budget here. (laughs) I know it's that. Very similar here in Australia, the electric vehicles. You have always said, if these electric vehicles are so good, why do they need a subsidy? Mm-hmm. Why, and the reality is that uh, it's probably, I imagine, the same, uh, you know, in uh, Wellington and in Auckland and maybe down in Christchurch. It's the, the inner city, the inner city wealthy greens um, that have these electric cars, uh, you know, paying, I, I don't know what the price, imagine the price is upwards of 100,000 uh, New Zealand dollars or Eighty thousand New Zealand dollars, um, an electric car, uh, as where the single working mother, you know, the single family or working family in the outer suburbs, you know, would never dream of buying an electric car because of the prices. And yet they're the ones paying the subsidies for these rich. It, it, it's it's a reverse Robin Hood. And, yeah. and 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 here in Australia, at least, I think it's a little bit different uh, in New Zealand where you've got uh, so much hydropower. Here in Australia, most of these electric cars are charged overnight, where in the east coast of Australia, it's 80 to 90% of the uh, electricity generated uh, from our grid at night time is coal, comes from coal. <laughs> See, with all these, electric ca- all these electric cars at night being charged on a coal grid, and if you look at the number and you do the data, that you actually emit more CO2 with these electric cars than you do with an equivalent petrol car. Because they're being charged at night on a coal grid, 
And that's before you even get to setting aside uh, all the um, you know the extra CO two that's actually in the in the in the build building. So a lot more cost, a lot more material cost in the electric car. Uh, a lot more. You know, you've got the aluminium, you've got the batteries. Uh, all that needs to be made. That has very high CO two emissions. So you start off with even if there was some advantage, it would take years to offset the initial higher um, CO two emissions from the manufacture of these electric cars before you'd offset it. Um, but look, it, it's electric car. They've just become a, a, a virtue, a virtue single as what they call them, uh, expensive toys for rich green people. I think is well, the best way to. Um, yeah, to and in, in in New Zealand, um, the tradesmen's ute. Uh, are subsidising the Teslas and the uh, and the smaller ones. Uh, it's it's it it is the ultimate uh, hypocrisy. And worse, in the budget, we learned uh, that charging stations are going to be presented around the country at a distance of between no further than one hundred and fifty to two hundred kilometres. Um, there is no market failure with petrol or diesel stations anywhere in this country. None doesn't need government, but here we are. We've got me as a taxpayer funding charging stations somewhere in the country. Um, it is absurd. Uh, but we've got them, as I say, the meddlers are rampant in New Zealand and no doubt they are rampant in Australia. Uh, look, uh, these charging stations, again, it's a subsidy paid. That money should be put in to improve road safety. Look at the black spots that you have on your roads, improving the highway conditions on the roads, uh, improving. That's where that money should be spent, at new traffic lights. But instead... Going to put these charging stations in. Look, and and, and the nonsense of it is, I don't know um, what's an equivalent uh, in New Zealand, but at Christmas time, there's a great exodus from the cities, from Sydney up to the north coast. Hundreds of thousands of cars, uh, you know, take off over the Christmas period. Now, how are you possibly going to charge all those cars with with charging stations? It, it is just a, um, it's just it's just a complete nonsense again if, if these things are so great they don't need substance but unfortunately this is again uh, a mass hypnosis that we've fallen into both in australia and new zealand about this net zero nonsense mm. and it's not just electric it's not, not just electric cars it's, it's not just energy generation uh, and transport and, and air transport but the thing that i think from a new zealand perspective which is looking across the tasman is madness it is agriculture. Remember, if you if you've signed up to net zero, right? I know in Australia it's about 15, 14, 15 percent of our total emissions profile comes from agriculture. Now that's not the the farmer having solar panels on his roof and um, his tractor running running on a battery. That's actually uh, methane emissions, the burps and the farts of cattle and sheep. Now that the only way you can get that to net zero. Is to, as I say, cull the herds. There's look, I know there's some talk about you know you can feed the feed the sheep seaweed tablets or something, and they reduce that, oh. and they don't burp as much or something. But that that's only just a small reduction. That doesn't get you to net zero. So if you so so you know the great one of the great economic advantages or competitive advantages that New Zealand has is with its dairy industry. That's where you guys are the very best in the world. And, and, and you're having a policy that actually will, will force all those farmers to have additional costs and put them at a competitive disadvantage to, to other places in the world and to force them to reduce their herd size. It is complete and utter 
madness. And remember, this is at a time where Australia and New Zealand have signed up to net zero by 2050. But you'd have friends up in China and say, we'll do, we'll do nothing to 2050, but we'll do something between 2050 and 2060. Like, uh, trust us, trust us in like, uh, you know, in about 25 years, uh, trust us in about 25 years and then we'll start on something. As well, the Chinese are building hundreds of new coal-fired uh, power stations to lift their people out of poverty. Now, what we are, even if, if you believe that there's this knob that you can adjust the uh, CO2 levels and that knob adjusts us, the temperature and that knob adjusts bad weather, even if you believe that, what Australia and New Zealand are doing will account for absolutely nothing because, I said, our friends up in communist China are continuing to expand their economy, uh, build all these new coal-fired power stations, uh, built, making more concrete, uh, more steel, more glass, more aluminium, uh, all the things that uh, emit CO2, and are doing nothing to the 2050. So it is just self-inflicted madness to our economy. Now, I said, now we're in Australia a little bit lucky. We've got a little bit more diverse in our economy. But with New Zealand, we've got so much importance on the agricultural sector. It is pure insanity. I just shake my head and I just hope there's a few politicians over there for New Zealand's sake. They're going to speak up about this. They're going to call out for the nonsense that it actually is and get behind to say, hey, you know, tell you what, you know, someone said, I'm a New Zealand, I'm, I'm going to stand up for New Zealand farmers, I'm going to stand up for our nation, and we are not going to do anything that puts our agricultural sector to add costs on it and to put it to competitive advantage. Surely there's some politician in New Zealand that can be prepared to say that. The short answer, Craig, not one, not one. And we, for us, uh, the year ended uh, March, sorry, May 22, 82% of our exports for agriculture. Mm. No one says a thing. I'm a dairy farmer. My husband and I, we contract milk, 1,200 cows, not far from where Dawn is. And it is, it's pretty amazing to see, but we, what's happening around us as the crow flies in a 5K radius, we now have three pine farms that have come up. I don't even want to call them farms, but that's what they call them. So all owned by foreign giants who are coming, planting prime pastoral land in pine trees. No one else can afford to, you know, put the price as high as those guys bid. So that's three farms gone out. And slowly, slowly, the ripple effects are spreading through the economy. I listened to Malcolm Roberts last year very eloquently speaking about how the United Nations and their planetary health diet, they, you know, the East doesn't care. I know India, my motherland, they don't care. They're making power stations because they know with 1.4 billion people, you can't afford to have mutiny on the streets. Mm. But it just seems to me that uh, what happens out there, you know, whenever some stupid policy has to be pushed through in India, they'll use force. In the West, it seems legislation compensates. The pen is surely mightier than the sword. You sign us up to yet another accord, yet another deal, yet another voluntary United Nations agreement, and mm. there we go. Just. Oh, I think that had happened here in Australia. Uh, the 2013 election was won by Tony Abbott. Uh, mm. I was a member of his. I was a member of the Parliament in 2010 uh, when Julia Gillard was uh, the Prime Minister. She went into that 2010 election saying, there will be no carbon tax under a government that I lead. <laughs> the minute she got in office, she did a deal with the Greens and put in a carbon tax. Mm-hmm. So we fought, we marched in the streets against this, this idea of a carbon tax. 
We argued for the nonsense that it was. And, and Tony won that uh, 2013 election in an absolute landslide. It was one of the biggest election wins in, in years uh, in Australia. And yet within sort of like a little over 12 months, uh, Tony Abbott was rolled uh, by the Parliamentary Party, uh, replaced by Malcolm Turnbull, and all these policies we had about fighting them uh, were all just thrown away. And I can remember one day in the, you know, in the, in the it was, I can't remember, Scott Morrison and um, Malcolm Turnbull came and said, oh, we've, um, we've signed up to net zero for 2050. I'm like, hang on a minute, is it? When did we discuss this? Mm. So do I, do I go for a bathroom break, one, you know, one party room meeting and um, I missed the discussion on this? There was no discussion whatsoever in the party room. This policy was enforced upon the Liberal Party by just a few senior people at the time uh, and we basically capitulated to the Greens. And that's why you see here in Australia the last federal election um, seats that were traditional conservative seats were lost to what we call the Teals here, which is sort of like the... The Gucci Greens are probably a, a better expression. Probably a very a wealthy, a very wealthy, um, uh, the wealthy, wealthy inner city Greens. Um, because we didn't fight, we didn't put the arguments to the country about how these policies are going to lead to loss of income and poverty. And one of the great, amazing things I always as a member of Parliament, these people come to you. Oh, I want more money for health. I want more money spent on health. I want more money on social security. And I want to, I want you to raise the pensions and we want more money for Medicare. But I want to, but that's not one, but I want you to shut down all the sources of wealth creation that can help pay for these things. And this is my, my great concern going forward. If we, there's, there's going to be an awakening in both our countries. If we continue the way that we're heading, attacking the industries that pay the bills. There's going to be all of a sudden a time when there's, you know, so the, the rubber is going to hit the road and we're not going to have the wealth creation coming into our countries to pay for our pensions and social securities and nationalist insurance schemes and things that we want to have. We, we've got to keep, you know, working out what our nation's competitive advantages are. And you do as, a, as any small business does. You, you guys have got, I suppose, on your dairy farm, you've got probably some competitive advantages there and you protect them with your life, right? These are things that you are good at and you make sure you protect those competitive advantages with your life. But as countries, we're just surrendering our competitive advantages. And it's, you know, it's, there's going to be a reckoning sometime in the future. To me, the only question is how much damage do we do to ourselves? How much self-inflicted damage are we going to do to both Australian and New Zealand economies until we wake up to what we're actually doing and say, hang on a minute, this is there's enough politicians to say, hang on, this has got to stop. So, so Craig, it's it's interesting. The same same issues, different country. You're right, but you try and tell people that the derivation of an economy is um, the environment, whether it's a mining environment, a farming environment, a fishing environment, a forestry environment, doesn't matter. That's the derivation, pretty much, of everything. Mm. But you talked earlier about how the current generation of thinking is that the pie is only so big, it can't be grown, um, you can't add value to stuff. Um, yeah, I'm big on trying to capture value and, as, and, as well. And it won't shrink and you, don't, yeah. you can't do stupid things to make it get smaller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and of course we have a reserve bank that seems to uh, think or is seduced into printing money as, as often mm -hmm. as it can and uh, uh, inflate your way out of it. <laughs> I mean, that's the oxymoron or the contrast to me is uh, people say they the, the government doesn't like inflation, but in the end, inflation is what 
makes them, you know, their, their debt shrinks uh, in, uh, in a look, numerical of sense. Of course, the thing is, you've got to pay for it one way or the other. Yeah. yeah. Now, yes, you can you can use inflation to make your debt to to reduce your debt and to sort of right. But that means you pay. Everyone pays for it in inflation. Uh, that means your money that you have is worth, worth less. Absolutely, so think, right? Right. So where you might have like a thousand, what you, instead of a thousand bucks to spend, a thousand dollars used to buy a thousand dollars worth of goods. Now that thousand dollars only buys you nine hundred dollars worth of goods. So you're a hundred bucks worse off. So there's there's no, um, you know, what do you say? There's no free lunch. The, the the debt that we run up has got to be paid for uh, in some way uh, or the other. Absolutely, and and I've been making comments to people that yeah, I'm in my late sixties, um, we've in the mid eighties, nineteen eighties, we had reforms that um, had to be made. New Zealand was close to bankrupt under a guy uh, Sir Robert Muldoon's tenure, so we resurrected ourselves. Out of that went to this fully uh, this open economy, as you've probably heard about. Yes, and I believe I. I believe the first 20 years of my farming life were affected by that, um, just getting out of the hole. And uh, it didn't happen to everybody, but some of us it did. And now, 40 years on, I feel we're back to where we were in 1985. That's how I'm starting to feel. I've wasted 40 years. Uh, well, you haven't wasted it, but you've done your effort for 40 years. And now you've got a government who in three years has devalued everything you've ever worked for mm. significantly. Mm. And I don't know. The young people just haven't quite haven't quite latched onto it, but hopefully, hopefully we'll get there. Um, but I just going on. You you talked about um, how you don't know how the mindset changed in the Liberal Party so quickly uh, under Tony Abbott to, to Malcolm Turnbull. Mm. That also mystified me. Who were the, in your opinion, and you don't if you don't want to name them, you don't have to. Um, the rats that sort of uh, deserted the ship of the good ship Abbott. Well, the, unfortunately, the the structure of the Liberal Party here in Australia um, is basically first is each state, and each state is what I call terribly factionalised. Um, there's a left faction, a right faction. Often there's a few people in between, um, and, and they're more interested in fighting each other than they are actually the Labor Party. Uh, these factions and. Tony Abbott was from the, the right conservative faction uh, and Malcolm Turnbull was from the, the left, um, you know, I would say more sort of socialist aligned, uh, more green faction in the party. And um, uh, unfortunately, what happened, to Tony, probably one of Tony's biggest mistakes was that he had such a, a big, big win. He had such a big backbench that he couldn't give everyone jobs. So that you only make so many people ministers and assistant ministers and uh, things like that. So you got all these sort of people that have you know, got themselves elected to Parliament, but everyone's a genius, and uh, I should be there on the I should be there on the front bench, you know, um, uh, you know, polishing the front bench and making all these decisions. And because it's very easy where you've got uh, a huge a huge number, uh, this greatly inflated backbench that um, uh, the forces against Tony Abbott could go around and whisper in everyone's ears, "Oh, mate, you know." You know, wonderful speech you gave in Parliament. You know, but Tony doesn't. Tony doesn't rate you at all. You know, if you if there was a change of leadership, you know, uh, you know if Malcolm's made leader, you'd be on the front bench. You know, oh really? Oh really? You know, would you be with us? Would you be with us? And that's that's how they did it. They went round and they picked them uh, one off at a time. And as soon as they thought they had the numbers, they uh, uh, they moved. And then of course you had all these people. You know, these all these people that. Uh, Pretty much were no hopers, 
all of a sudden appointed to the you know, the front bench under under Turnbull, and there was a complete uh, a lot of reversal in policy. And because we we only just won, we scraped over the line in um, uh, that would have been 2016 with Malcolm Turnbull winning, and then Malcolm's was a disastrous run up to 20 um, yeah up going into that term, and then you know it was obvious we couldn't win under Malcolm, and then there was the move to uh, to try and bring Peter Dutton in, uh, but that was only a couple of people short, and then uh, Scott Morrison took over, and then he somehow rather fluked, fluked the win in 2019 because, you know, the Labor government's election uh, performance was just, it was just beyond beyond incompetence how they how they ran it. They brought all these, you know, announced all these crazy schemes that were attacking everyone, and uh, you know, and luckily uh, the coalition just, uh, just fell over the line, but then and then we had the COVID years where, you know, um, where every liberal policy was thrown out the window. And, and, and not only that, they, the great tragedy was that the Liberal Party ran up this massive, massive debt. So for decades, the Liberal Party in Australia had this great advantage over their Labor opponents. We say we were the, the Liberal Party were the ones that were good managers of money and the Liberals were the ones that were, you know, wouldn't run up a, a great debt. Well, that now has been thrown out the window for a generation. It's quite sad um, the way I look at it. I, you know, I watch Australian TV um, because, uh, Parliament TV, sorry, uh, because I find it more uh, interesting and enthralling than New Zealand uh, Parliament. You debate a whole lot stronger and I, and I really, whoever's <laughs> PM, and I, you know, I'm not going to take sides here, they seem to present a case <laughs> nasty as some of it is, um, better than we do in New Zealand. And and it's, it's a more... Ver, ver, some more voracious debate. I like it. And I'll never forget one guy that had me conv- convinced that he was absolutely just the top man. It was Christopher Pine from uh, <laughs> South Australia. His debating skills, the way he could get on his feet and tell a story was stunning. And I was in awe of the guy. Uh, but he didn't exactly cover himself with glory in the end. No, did he? he didn't. Christo was a very good, uh, a very clever parliamentary operator. Um, you know, but uh, again, he was one of the ones that were, and I'm sure he'll openly admit this, he was one of the ones undermining Tony Abbott uh, within the party and uh, has done a lot of long-term, long-term damage to the, uh, you know, to the Liberal brand. Well, in fact, um, I'm not surprised to hear that. Uh, I actually sort of sensed that in the end anyway. I remember the Julie Bishop um, meltdown, the whole the whole lot of the, the machinations that were going on and, uh yeah, there was um, some gaming that ended up badly for some people. Just going back to another point um, in your hand, in your maiden speech, you had talked about something that is quite dear to uh, um, Jaspreet's heart. I know because she talks about the United Nations SDGs and and the like. And you said, uh, talking about um, your about Sydney, actually, you said. Um, the, the quality of life is threatened by a mad and dangerous plan to cram over 7 million people into Sydney, stacking them pallet-like in high-rise apartments, forcing parents to spend more and more time in gridlock traffic and reducing the time they spend with their families. Now, I bring that up because we now have this push globally to have smart cities, 20-minute cities, 15-minute cities, and it just seems a bidding war down to five-minute cities if you can get there. Um it seems that you're ahead of the game here, Craig. Um, mm-hmm. Did you see uh, any linkage with the um, United Nations agendas? Not, not back then. But one of the great things that um, uh, 
has concerned me is, has been the housing affordability here. I know it's also a great problem uh, in many cities in, in New Zealand. Um, we're forcing uh, young people out of the housing market um, and we're building more and more of these high-rise uh, apartments uh, in the city. Um, you know, there was a great paper uh, done uh, about 10 years ago. It was called uh, Children of a Compact City. They talked about how children living and growing up in these urban environments had so uh, less sort of like, you know, social skills and dexterity as compared to ki kids that grew up in a, you know, in a, in a a more sort of outer suburban area where they had their own backyards to backyards to play in. And uh, when I was going to, to school in the you know, in the in the 70s, we had this policy in Australia. It was called de it was a decentralization policy. And the idea was that you would, you would move, you, you would strengthen all your regional towns in Australia. Because even though we've got this massive landmass in Australia, the, the the most of the population is in just a few big cities. And with all these wonderful country towns, which you know, I'm sure many people in New Zealand go and drive through these country towns and you see they're actually, they're going backwards. A lot of these country towns we have in uh, New South Wales had greater prosperity a century ago than they do today. You go to them, you go to them, you drive down the main street and half the shops are, are, are locked up uh, and, and decaying. And we're moving everyone into the city to try and rack them and stack them up in these high-rise apartments like we live in Hong Kong, which, which to me is, if you live in Hong Kong or Singapore, they don't have any land, okay, that's all they've got. But to me, it, it, this policy has always been madness of, of trying to uh, restrict um, you know, development and we basically have a policy of centralising uh, people uh, in, in our capital cities. And you go around some of the developed, some of the areas where I grew up in, you, you can't even recognise the places today. And they're building all these apartments, like you're talking about over an hour plus from the Sydney CBD, and they're building like these tiny little houses on 300 square metres. It's, you know, the, where the backyard you couldn't, you know, you, you got a cat and it swung a cat round by the tail. Uh, you know, you, you'd be knocking the cat's hat against all the years. You couldn't swing a cat in these places. Yeah. Um, you know, where kids don't have the freedom to, uh, to run and play like they did. And, and that um, deterioration in the quality of life doesn't show up any, in any GDP numbers. Um, you know, but it shows up like, oh, you know, there's actually been an increase in GDP. If you, if you, you spend more time in traffic, you use more petrol. Well, that's GDP increasing, not, not the fact that, you know, you've, you've done it. And um, so I've always been greatly concerned. And the house price inflation uh, that we have seen here in Australia um, has just been frightening. <clears throat> Great if you own, you know, there's, a, there's an illusion if you, if, you own, uh, if you own your own house, well, that's, Fantastic, as long as you've got no kids that you want to, you know, they've got a problem to get in the housing market, and that you're going to try maybe sell your house and go and live in a caravan. You've got to live somewhere. So if the price of your house goes, it's this artificial wealth creation that the, you know, if you your house, the gap between moving somewhere a bit better becomes bigger and unaffordable. But what we've done is we've basically priced a generation of young Australians out of the housing market. Is where they think they're going to, you know, we always, I'm sure it was in New Zealand, was the, this great dream of, uh, you know, we call it the great Australian dream. It was probably the great New Zealand dream as well about you would own your own little piece of the country, right, that you could, that was yours, you know, where you'd have your own little vegetable patch in the, in, in, in the backyard and uh, you'd probably have a little cricket pitch or uh, somewhere you could go and kick a, kick a footy with the kids. 
that was the great dream that, that, that you had, that that was your piece of the world. Now, because we've restricted supply and we've had huge migration increases, so we've continually kept the market uh, undersupplied with houses, which has kept the prices going up, yeah. which has created a, a Ponzi scheme of wealth creation. Uh, we've taken that dream away from a generation. And and now there's a, there's a study out oh, a couple of months ago showed that 75% or something, 80% of uh, young Australians have basically given up on the thoughts that they could own their own house. Now, when you do that, you change the mentality of a society. If, if, if kids have got a thing, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll save it, I'll, I'll put some money aside and I'll be able to pay off my own house and get your own house and the, the forced savings of paying off the mortgages, you know, um, it brings in, in, in discipline and, um, you know, if you don't have that, you just rent, you'll never get so, and you've got some superannuation scheme the government's going to look after you. What the hell? Just go out on the weekend, get on the you know, get on the grog, uh, you know, get smoke whatever, smoke whatever stuff, have a great time, and be buggered about the be buggered about the future. Uh, you, you you fundamentally change society, and this is something that uh, um, we've been very. My, my United Australia Party has been very strong. We've got to uh, get back to a policy of decentralisation. We've got to strengthen our regional towns and cities, and make sure that there are plenty of viable options. Uh, for young people to move to those centres, have a great quality of life, uh, have, you know, super fast internet, have all the cafes and restaurants that they want and the services in these regional areas rather than having to uh, live in a, um, you know, as I said, like a uh, uh, living in a, a chicken coop in uh, in Sydney. And you, you may not have heard, in the next 12 months in Australia, where, uh, the number is 715,000 new migrants in 12 months coming to Australia. Now, at mm. the moment, we've, we've got a housing crisis. We've got so many Australians living in their cars. We've got rents going through the roof, um, and we're going to bring in 715,000 migrants in just the next 12 months. Wow. We are speaking, Don Nicholson and I, to Craig Kelly, Australian politician on Greenwash today. Craig, I... I can't but help just keep nodding at everything you say. And now coming to migration, we are at the exact same state of affairs. The amount of migration we've seen in New Zealand, and I don't say it lightly, in 2009, my husband and I were fresh migrants to New Zealand at that point. And we had come out here just to go farming. I'm an ex-credit mortgage underwriter with the Citibank. My husband is also a banker. Mm -hmm. And farming was all we came out here to do from the wheat mm -hmm. basket of India, Punjab out here. Now, as as I see it, the uh, amount of migration, we've not had quite your numbers, but then we are not quite as big. We've had about 150,000 come in over the last uh, few months, close to a year. And it's in it's increasing day by day. I also see, because also being a member of the Indian community diaspora here, I gave up my passport in 2017, now a Kiwi. I also see people becoming more insular. Yeah. communities becoming, if I may use the words, almost tribal. There is this constant narrative that I hear that New Zealand is a very racist country. New Zealand is how everything is white supremacy or colonialism and so on and so forth. And it, it's very surprising to me because India, you know, colonialism, right, they were British were there for 200 years. But I see a difference very clearly between history and victimhood. 
But somehow, right now, that seems to be, people seem to suddenly think that everything, anything that today is wrong or that perceived wrongs often, suddenly there's colonialism to blame for it. We have this whole push for diversity and social acceptance and so on and so forth. But I often, I've asked this question to the Indian diaspora here and, uh, you know, sort of been looked at that, tell me, did you ever face racism in India? Because I can tell you that I come from a very small, the Sikh community. And at times you would face issues, but it's with a sinking sense of deja vu that I think that the whole, the caste structure, the religion thing, all that I thought I left behind has followed me here, but in a different way. Now you have, you know, religion is not that big. So we use ethnicity here to divide. In Australia, I hear, often read about uh, the voice issue and the Aboriginal voice. Do you see all these issues? Have you seen Sydney changing as you've grown up there with migration and the issues it brings? Yeah, look, we've, we've had um, migration uh, has brought, um, has had wonderful benefits uh, to this country. But the problem we've had over recent years, the rates of migration have been significantly greater than the number of new housing uh than their new housing that was available. Mm. So, it's, so it's like a game of sort of like reverse musical chairs where you're getting more and more people into the game, but mm. you're not putting enough chairs out. And all of a sudden it's just, the music stops, everyone sits down and there's not enough chairs for everyone. And then so some people end up on the street living in cars and the price of those chairs uh, goes up. Um, you know, we, we people like to say Australia's, you know, I think that we are probably the most racially tolerant nation uh, I think along with New Zealand, about anywhere in the world. But people can come here. Uh, generally, if you're prepared to work uh, and get involved in the community, people don't care. And my, my, mm-hmm. my experience throughout life, people don't care what the colour of your skin is or what ethnicity you are or what religion you are. Or if you're getting there, you're going to work hard and be part of the community. Uh, it doesn't matter. And people, I think, in many respects, are, are almost colourblind to that. But there's there's a certain section of the, the community that uh, love to cry every, you know, their great defence of their positions. Oh, you're a racist. You're a racist. You know, they love to scream that. So, so if you say, so everyone says that, oh, hang on a minute, 715,000 new migrants in the next 12 months might cause a few problems. Racist, racist, they go, mm. you know, mm. <laughs> to, to, to shut, the, shut the debate down. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really concerning uh, what our cities are going to look like uh, in Australia if we keep these rates of migration up, if we keep uh, centralising everything in our cities, we're going to build uh, ghettos, uh, you know, with these new housing developments that are doing all these multi-hire, you know, you, you go to some places in Western Sydney, you drive through, you know, you know, I mean, you're going talking, you're talking an hour from the city and you're seeing these massive high-rises going up. You think this is this is just this is just insanity. What quality of life are those kids going to have living in those living in those high rise high rise blocks when you've got such a wide and open countryside that we have in Australia? But again, you know, the government's partly at fault because they the high rates of migration play into the budget. You can bring these people, you can delay all your infrastructure spending on you know, new hospitals and new train lines and new roads and new bridges. You can delay all that. You can pull those things off. Uh, but you get the migrants in, so you get a sugar hit to your budget 
uh, through mm. the increase in taxes. Mm. A lot of the big businesses like it because they get a jump up in sales uh, mm. and they know that they can increase their sales, they can increase their profits and dividends. So it's this sugar hit to the economy without actually looking at the true, the true both social and economic costs of these huge, huge migration programs that we have. I mean, and of course, Australia's been a, um, a beneficiary, I might say, of all this um, talent from New Zealand. Uh, that's right. You know, we've, <laughs> what we've did, got. What was the great quote of Maldonado? Uh, oh, he says, uh, "What was it when, when a New Zealander goes to Australia, it improves the IQ of both countries." Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, but you know, Jasper talked of 150,000 um, migrants. Um, there is a, the net effect of that uh, with people leaving is about sixty-five thousand. Uh, but I heard in the UK they're bringing in uh, 550,000 this year, letting legally come in. God knows what's happening illegally. And uh, you look at the United States southern border. And, and of course, this is part of this borderless world that the uh, United Nations uh, has said it wants. It wants this world without borders. <laughs> and they want to destroy. And I know that some people think I'm crazy. They want to destroy nationhood, mm. uh, sovereignty. Um, are you feeling that in Australia as well? Look, I have some grave concerns about the policies and directions of both the United Nations and their, their subsidiaries, the World Health Organization, uh, the directions that uh, they are pushing uh, countries. Uh, we've got to make sure that the decisions that we make here in Australia and New Zealand put our nation's sovereignty first before we bow down to some sort of like globalist um, you know, globalist agenda has uh, been pushed by all these unelected bureaucrats uh, led by our great friend, uh, Mr. Klaus Schwab. Um, yeah, uh, we've got to, that, that's why we need strong politicians in both countries. They're going to stand up for the rights of our country and sometimes say to these globals, hey, you know what? Hey, Klaus, shove it up your jumper, mate. And uh, now we're going to do what's best for us, uh, not for you and your globalist buddies. Fantastic. And I do see um, some of your senators that you mentioned earlier, um, uh, like Alex Antic and Jared Rennick and people would have similar views. But in New Zealand, we have no one, no one willing to challenge that. Mm. And that's where we are today. And, you know, Reality Check Radio, we're trying to bring this to the forefront um, in a way that's uh, hopefully gives all sides of the story. Uh, mm. But it's difficult. Uh, trying to get the audience to understand the severity of um, having uh, the sanctity of so uh, yeah, of sovereignty and, in fact, the sanctity of private property rights, which is the big thing that I talk mm -hmm. about. So, yeah, I mean, we've got a lot of similarity, but um, as I said, many New Zealanders are saying we're going back to Aussie or we're going to go to Aussie and stay there because New Zealand's um, not a great place at the moment. And, mm -hmm. and you know, uh, if I had... Uh, if I had my kids say um, they want to go to Australia and live, I wouldn't stop them right now. Mm. Which is which is a tragedy mm. uh, in New Zealand. Once that sort of starts, you get a bit of a brain drain. Yeah. Um, you know, and that that has great uh, consequences. Uh, you know, for the economy uh, in the in the long term. But you, you talk about um, the the role of the media. It's it's this very similar thing in Australia. We've got our uh, government-funded broadcaster, the uh, what we call our ABC here. Um, but sorry, that the 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 media uh, landscape has in the last two or th I would say the last three or four years 
has had this dramatic step to the left. Uh, the censorship that we've um, the censorship that we've seen, like you know, I was a, a regular uh, guest on the Sky News, mm. uh, and during the COVID uh, period, um, you know, we were arguing against lockdowns. Uh, I was arguing against, especially uh, vaccine mandates, uh, saying you know whatever efficacy that they have, uh, you know this is it's a it's a breach of human rights to force someone to undergo a medical intervention. Uh, with threat or disadvantage or prejudice. That's just not my words. That's actually part of a treaty that both Australia and New Zealand have signed called the International Treaty called the, that's the, uh, that's the thing, the Human Rights and Bioethics and Human Rights Treaty uh, that we signed up to. Um, yeah, and, and what happened, uh, Facebook went back and, and Sky News relied greatly on their revenue and advertising on Facebook. Facebook went back through like about, a month's worth of programs. They picked out seven programs, I think six of which I were on. Uh, they censored them and they took them down. They gave Sky News a week's ban. So if you're, you're the running Sky News, hang on a minute. We've, and they told them, if you do it again, we'll give you a 30-day ban. So the guys at Sky News <laughs> panicked. They said, we can't have anything. Okay, we can't talk about, uh, we can't have any questions about anything to do with the narrative on the vaccines, early treatment, all that's off the table, and Kelly's banned. And that was that was Sky News that was the, the one media outlet in Australia that was basically pushing back against the narrative. Um, you know, it was it was a time of uh, media, complete media uh, censorship. You couldn't get uh, you couldn't get a foot in in any of the other uh, channels. I did uh, I did one interview um, on one of the breakfast shows. Um, you know, and the lady carried on like, a, you know, made, I thought I made, and she carried on like a goose and was, um, uh, you know, and since then I was never invited back on any of the, any, any of the mainstream media. It was basically a complete blockout on any, any alternate opinion. And, and so, listeners, um, even if you have to do a replay of this segment later, this is the key point about censorship of the media uh, if they don't like the narrative that someone's presenting. Um, and so good on you, Craig, for standing tall. Uh, you know, in New Zealand, we have this um, public interest journalism fund. I think it started <laughs> off at 55 million. God knows where it ends. We know we spent $116 million as taxpayers um, talking about the COVID response, $116 million in a country of 5 million people. Um, so that narrative, uh, you know, when you know how the media is bought and paid for, it's mm. difficult to get your argument out. So um, those of us that want to do that have really got to, got to play hard. And when you've got social media um, doing it to you as well as you've just alluded to, it's doubly hard. So uh, hence the formation of Reality Check Radio. Um, just going on from a bit of that, um, you mentioned there was ivermectin was often talked about um, and rubbished by the authorities. What's the latest data on that? Is it, it you know, does it really work? Okay, let me let me go back. This is one of my um, hobby horse subjects. Um, <laughs> early on, early on in the COVID issue, um, someone sent me a a video that a doc called, guy called Doctor Zev Zelenko had recorded. Uh, he'd recorded as a message to President Trump. Uh, he was a doctor in I think upstate uh, New York. Uh, and he he had done his research, and he was using a treatment of hydroxychloroquine 
uh, as combined with zinc, so it was the combination of the two together with hydroxychloroquine being a zinc ionophore and uh, azithromycin as an antibiotic as a protective. And his argument was that the, um, you've got to have a certain zinc level. If you get the zinc level in your cells up to a certain level, the virus won't replicate. But you don't get the zinc. The zinc doesn't absorb into the cells by itself. It needs a zinc ionophore. So he called it the bullet and the gun, with the, uh, the gun being hydroxychloroquine and the bullet being zinc. And he did this video and basically said, look, you know, um, I'm, so, I'm getting enormous results uh, with this. None of my every, my patients that I'm giving it to, if I give it to them early, are not getting sick and not going to hospital. I've done this for hundreds of people. Well, I thought, hallelujah. Well, this is at a time when, you know, you, I'm thinking, you know, the, the world's going to close down. If you looked at those early days when this was done, you're thinking that, you had this economic meltdown of sort of something, uh, you know, resembling the Great Depression that we were looking at, and you're looking at your untold deaths and people dropping it. I thought, hallelujah, this guy's actually come up with something. This is the best news I've ever heard. So I posted um, I posted up on my social media page. Anyhow, about three days later, I got a call from one of the, uh, the journalists from our ABC, Australian, the government-run broadcasting, demanding that I issue an apology because Facebook had taken this uh, doctor's uh, video down and deemed it as misinformation, and therefore I had posted misinformation and I owed the nation an apology. I said, hang on a minute. How does someone at Facebook know that this doctor's wrong? What medical expertise does Facebook have that this doctor has got it wrong? And, and I was just shocked by the hostility that, was faced from what should have been great news to celebrate. So I, I ended up contacting this Dr. Zelenko and we struck up a, a great friendship and uh, I spoke with him and he explained to me all the, as uh, someone from the non-medical background, he took me through it all and explained to me how it works and showed me it doesn't. And then I spoke to other doctors in the US, like Dr., uh, a guy called Dr. Brian Tyson, who was out of California, um, who was working out called Dr. George Farid, and they were, they were using the Zelenko's protocol. And they had like thousands of patients through with zero hospitalizations and zero deaths using it. And then I spoke to doctors uh, over in the UK about this. I spoke to doctors here in Australia, prof professors in Australia, some of our elite, most highly qualified professors. And, and I was being slaughtered in the media, accused of spreading misinformation. And, you know, it turns out I didn't know at the time that um, if they admitted hydroxychloroquine combined with zinc was an effective treatment, the vaccines would not have been able to obtain their emergency use authorization in the US. So you have these vaccine manufacturers, these big pharmaceutical companies, seeing this multi-million dollar payday, right? You can imagine you, they're sitting there and there's this, this giant pot of gold, you know, across the other side of the road. And, and the only thing that can stop them from in that pot of gold is the potential of hydroxychloroquine successful. So they set out on this massive, massive uh, disinformation campaign. And I was, just, I was just perplexed by what was happening sort of thing. And, I was, and the studies were coming through showing how successful hydroxychloroquine was. The study after study and reports from all around the world, from uh, uh, there was Didier, Dr. Didier Rialt in France reporting it successfully, uh, you know, there was all this evidence showing how successful it was. And I remember one night in Canberra when I was 
And so normally in Canberra, in, in, during the parliamentary week, there's always there's, there's, a, there's 101 dinners to go to on a Wednesday night. Wednesday night was a night when everyone goes out for dinner. This Thursday is the last day and everyone goes home sort of thing. So Wednesday night's the big night for, you know, when everyone goes out for dinner because my uh, dinner invitations dried up to zero sort of thing. So I was sitting out uh, in the car by myself waiting for a, a pizza to be cooked in the middle of winter sort of thing because I was sort of personal on grata uh, with everyone for talking and for daring mention hydroxychloroquine. I got a call from a, a guy called Professor uh, Thomas Barodi. Uh, he's considered one of the uh, medical geniuses here in Australia. Uh, his medical breakthroughs of they say have saved thousands of lives and billions of dollars, and um, you know just one of the smartest uh, you know medical brains that, that we have in the world. And he rang me and he said, "Mate, you're 100 percent right on hydroxychloroquine." I said, "Professor, Professor, please can you please say something? Can you give me some support? I'm getting killed out there." I just you know, trying to mention this. He said to me, he said, nah. he said, look, he said, I, he said, it's a bit dirty. I said, there's President Trump, President Trump's said something good about it. So they're going out. He said, he said to me, I reckon that I can get the same or better results substituting instead of using hydroxychloroquine, using ivermectin and combining it with zinc, and using doxycycline as the antibiotic instead of azithromycin. So I said, what's Ivermectin, I'd never heard of it before. So he went through and um, explained it all to me and it all made sense. Uh, and then we had these studies coming out from around the world uh, of India. We had all these countries uh, using uh, this as a protocol, all having success about it. We had all these studies showing its success. And then the mad war started up again. It was a mad war that anyone, that if you mentioned um, Ivermectin, you were shouted down and yelled out as though you were some sort of crazy person. And again, we didn't know at the time, but we knew that we now know that again that ivermectin was a blockage to that big pot of gold for all these pharmaceutical companies. And we had in Australia, then we had the, uh, I could remember one night listening to Dr. Uh, Pierre Corey uh, in the US. He was giving testimony uh, in the yeah. Senate. And uh, yeah, I was sitting up about three o'clock in the morning, sort of thing, and I'm sitting up in my bedroom, you know, listening to, uh, watching watching on the internet, and he says, you know, I am a man of science, and that's it. You know, I can tell you this hydroxychloroquine, I've used it all these bases, and I'm standing there jumping up and down like a footy game, going, yes, yes, yes. You know, so I ended up speaking with, you know, I spoke with Dr. Pierre Corey, and I spoke with Dr. Peter McCullough, and it was just a period of, of madness that this was being done. And, and then the TGA in Australia, and I, I actually um, blocked doctors from prescribing ivermectin. Now, I actually, I actually got a script because at the time I was, I was travelling extensively around the country and going to rallies and protests. So I actually got a prescription for uh, an ivermectin prescription prescribed uh, by my doctor, which is both a treatment and a prophylaxis. And it was, again, the ivermectin, the zinc and the doxycycline. So I kept that, I kept that with me. And I remember there was one day down in Can Canberra, I got down there, I'd driven down. I felt terrible, sort of thing. I, I spent, and I, I started to take the, 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 the. Luckily, I had them with me. Started to take them with me, and I thought, oh, I spent the whole night coughing. I didn't sleep a wink at night. I was coughing all night. And so I rang up the, uh, what we call the whip in Parliament. So look, you know, his name was Burson Mate. I, I can't come in today. I can't come into the payroom. I, I can't stop coughing. You know, this is the time when you, if you coughed in public, you know, like you were put put that man in jail. <laughs> So I said, I can't, I can't possibly come in. 
So I spent the day in bed and kept the ivermectin and the zinc up and the, and I thought I'd better go and get myself a, a COVID test, you know, like a, so I dragged myself into the car one of those drive-through COVID test centres down in Canberra. Yeah? I came back and, and and went to bed sort of thing and the, the phone rang about, it was a text message about 4 o'clock in the morning. I, I tested negative. Oh, geez, that's a surprise. I thought I would have had COVID for sure. And so I woke up the next morning. You know, when you wake up in the morning, you're still trying, you're still, hey, I'm thinking, I thought to myself, the way how sick I am, it's going to take me at least a week to recover. I know that from you know that from past experience when you you start getting a bit sick and your your throat goes a bit croaking. You know you know oh geez I'm down for the count. This will take several at least several days to recover. This again. I wake up in the morning, but hang on a minute, I'm feeling okay. So this can't be right. I went and jumped in the shower. There's something wrong here. I said I'm okay. So so I'm convinced that was the ivermectin. Now if it wasn't COVID, it was some type of other uh, virus. And that's what uh, uh, that's one of the great things about ivermectin. It's not just about COVID; it's against a whole range uh, of viruses. And I think that at that time I was fortunate because I had the script with me, I had the medicine with me, but the TGA had actually banned it. And in Australia, that's our, our Therapeutic Goods Association, which is the medicines regulator. They had taken away the doctor's rights to prescribe ivermectin. And the reasons that they gave at the time were the most ridiculous reasons that you've ever seen in, in your life. They they argued that it was, it was like pathetic. They Firstly, they argued, oh, there was a shortage of supply. Like, hang on a minute, you can make more of the stuff and you can make it quickly in huge numbers. At the time, I remember reading something from India, they had excess production of, of 23 million doses a month that they could produce. And that's without ramping production. That was just the existing production capacity. And then they said, oh, we've got to, um, oh, we've, we've got to, um, if people take ivermectin, they may not go get tested for COVID because they may think that they uh, they can't get the virus. Well, hang on a minute. That's exactly what you were saying about the, the COVID vaccines. If you're in vaccines, you couldn't catch it and therefore you might spread it. So it was just these pathetic arguments. Now, about 10 days ago, um, the TGA finally have rolled over mm. and they have let, given that a right to, for doctors again to prescribe ivermectin yep. off-label, which is a right they had previously before the TGA has done that. Now, the reason I believe that is that the, the evidence is now so overwhelming, it's not funny. There's mm. something like 96, 96 trials uh, that have been published uh, on this, uh, something like the 90 of them show a, a benefit for ivermectin. Uh, you know the question is what is the what is the ideal dose, uh, what is the optimum dose level for the, for the weight of the person, um, what's the optimum time of taking? Obviously, the quicker the better. Um, and if you look through some of these other studies that have found the claim ivermectin is not effective, look, uh, the, the people behind these studies, I, I, I'm serious, about this. they belong in jail. I, they, have I have... Committed, they have committed medical fraud. What they have done, they have designed these studies uh, to fail. They've used a whole host of tricks. They've underdosed patients. They've told people to take the drug uh, on an empty stomach when they know that reduces the effectiveness of it by at least half. They've given it to people late. They've only given it to three days. Uh, the, the tricks that they have used to try and show that, oh, ivermectin has no effect, really are absolutely, absolutely scandalous. 
I, so, I looked at one of those studies, the active six one, and they are saying just take it for three days. And there's a one, I think there's two full pages of doctors, the you know, the researchers who have put their conflicts of interest. And oh, I just look at the, I looked at those two pages, I said, right. And it's it's amazing what we've come to. My parents at that time, mom sent me a screenshot of what she had been given at a, at her take-home COVID pack that had a boxycycline, zinc, ivermectin, and yeah, I was like, mom, maybe India is Sena. But we have another thing, Craig, that you don't have. Leave the media aside. We have something we call as the disinformation project. Yes. You know, these are the ones who got after the likes of me last year when we were running for the local body elections and called us a cancer, uh, yeah, cancer attack in the very grassroots of democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyone who gets of my ilk who gets into local government. Yet in another time, there would be, oh, right, brown migrant woman. She full, he takes all the victimhood, this thing, let's go there. <laughs> but now, if you just stand on your own, this thing, you are a conspiracy theorist. Mm. Our government is right now, this is on 15th May, as I'm looking at Gets, our government tender website. They have put out a request for proposal. The tender name is called Insights to Build an Empirical Picture of the Disinformation Landscape in New Zealand. <laughs> start start with the government on the on the disinformation. <laughs> we had so much disinformation coming from the big pharmaceutical companies, and it was parroted by our media, absolutely parroted by the media. And uh, and then you had that was a horse paste, there was a horse medicine, and, and you talk about that active six trial. You were right. You, the people behind that trial had were all had uh, they all had shareholdings and stock. In all the companies, if they found ivermectin was effective, would have been decimated. Their stock price would have been decimated. They were getting money from the people that provided uh, remdesivir. Um, yeah. it, was, it, it, it is beyond on distress. And that that active six trial, that's the one. That's, oh, look, that's that's it. The final shows it doesn't work. It actually shows it does work. <laughs> does work. What, what they did, what they did, the original protocols in that trial were uh, where they looked at what the endpoints were. They were testing were at fourteen days. Halfway through the study, they went and changed to 28 days. Mm. If you look hidden in the back supplements, it shows at 14 days, I said those taking the ivermectin, there was a 27% benefit with a 95% probability. <laughs> so they were saying basically, saying, look, this thing, we think this will work for you. There's a 95% probability it will work. Showing it works in even this low dose is showing it works in 27% of our patients and we're 97% it's affected, but we're not. We don't recommend it. No, it is is no difference between the climate hysteria and the COVID hysteria. And, you know, we've been chatting for a while, but I'd really like to end with this uh, link that I saw on your Twitter page, uh, Craig, uh, about the Bloomberg headline today. South Africa beats climate as blackouts cut emissions. Wow. (laughs) Should we all applaud them? Yeah, you, Greg, Greg, how fantastic it is. Poor old people in South Africa. Uh, you know, they're doing, they're doing pretty tough over there as it is most of the South Africans. They have to put up with now blackouts, a loss of industrial production, a loss of jobs, a loss of wealth, you know, um, a declining tax revenues to the government. And, hey, let's celebrate. Uh, uh, let's celebrate that. Mind, emissions have gone down. You know, it's, it, this, is, this is the insane world that we live in. And that's why we've got to keep fighting the good fight. I said, look, you know, to me, all the facts all the data, all the science is on our side mm. and we've just got to keep fighting and fighting and fighting and talking about this as much as we can. Um, as they say, uh, um, courage is contagious. 
Uh, you know, you get one person that wakes up and another person that wakes up. And I, I see a person in Australia every single day. Um, there's something that happens, probably you know, globally or something. There's some piece of data that comes out, some other fact that comes out, someone else comes out and admits they've got it wrong. Every single day, people are waking up to the, the hoodwink that's been going on. And the question is, can we wake up enough people before we do catastrophic damage to our, uh, our economies? Yeah, and that's identical to what Ian Plymer, who we had on last week, Craig said. He says, even if I go to the checkout counter, I'm talking to the lady there. I'll relate the weather right. to emissions, to something. Yeah, and yeah, the same message, I don't. Yeah, same message. Good man, all the- good man Ian. I know him well, yes. Yeah, I figured you might. No, it's the same message, and we try our best over here to to, to uh, tell people that they need to just open their eyes, and you try to do it with um, with dignity. Um, but it, it's amazing the number of people that just close off immediately. Uh, they they think you're um, a bit of a bit of a crazy, but um, we keep we keep trying. So um, yeah, look, I think uh, we should close uh, this this chat and. Uh, um, Craig, it's been great uh, having you on. I'm, um, we're honoured to have you on. In fact, and uh, I think the listeners have got a lot of a um, lot of good information here. And all all power to you, your mobility. Get get better. Get uh, get strong and fight the good fight with the United Australia Party. And uh, and we'll look forward to progress and look forward to having you back uh, yeah, on Reality well, Check Radio. What I'd say to people listening to this: uh, follow my um, Twitter feed. Um, and when you're out arguing this with people, argue about questions. Ask people questions. That's what I find the best way. You've got to you've got to try and get people to to think for themselves. Like argue, for example, you know, look, uh, if we if New Zealand closes down all our dairy farms, uh, what effect will that have on the global temperatures? Mm. Right. I ask some questions on that, and uh, you know, China's building all these coal fired power stations. Uh, over the next couple of years, uh, that's going to make a hundred times more emissions than uh, what our dairy sector is doing. Does that make sense? No, that's how I, I find the only way you've got to go through. You've got to, you've got to try and. You know, a lot of people, you're right. I'll put the, I'll put the, the mask up and they go, they'll go. I'll put the fingers in the ears, you know, and I'll put the hands over the eyes, and they'll go, da 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 da. I don't want to know, but there'll be a people that you know. There's still people out there. That if you can get those questions through to them and put it in in a form of questions to try and open their mind up and think. As I said, the data and science is all on our side. All on our side. And interestingly, the simplest um, um, approach I've heard in recent months was Senator Kennedy asking uh, the panel he had in front of him. I think there was a guy, Mark Carney, and others from, you know, likes of the big bankers and hedge funds. And he asked them, oh, so we spend all this money, how many trillion uh, like trillions um, by 20, 20 by twenty fifty, how much are we going to alter the temperature if, if the United States spends all these trillions? <laughs> and no one could answer. <laughs> no one. I'll tell you what the answer is. It's it's something like zero point zero. It's got zero point zero 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 zero, and then you might start getting into a number sort of thing. Yeah. So look, and that and that's if that's if the um, that's assuming that the the, the what you call the control knob with CO two works the way they say it does. <laughs> Fantastic! I oh, know. Look, we've 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 enjoyed this hour and a bit. So fantastic! Um, th- thanks for having um, your time, giving us your time, Craig. No, great pleasure. So we look, we're in a we're in a real fight here uh, with our ANZAC brothers. Um, we've got to keep keep the fight up. We've got to keep talking. And uh, anytime you want me back on, uh, I'm more than happy to come come on. Fantastic! Thank you so much, Craig. Really thanks. appreciate great it. Thanks. Thank you. 
Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.